From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour is made in Bossier Parish, Louisiana. This is a story about prayer in public schools and the long battle to bring it back. And please forgive me if the opening to this program is lengthy, but I'm going to give credit where it is due to those who have covered the rather rapid changes happening in recent years. Advocates for prayer in school have won some major battles. In Bossier, some concerned parents and their kids worked together on a lawsuit challenging the overtly Christian themes, prayers, and messages in public schools there. I'm going to quote journalist Linda K. Wertheimer, who has from what I can see, done the most extensive recent reporting on this issue in the country. As Wertheimer reports, the battle over prayer in school really started in the 1800s, and she writes, quote, In two landmark cases in the early 1960s, the court, the Supreme Court, ruled against mandatory prayer and Bible readings in schools. Between 1962 and last year, the court ruled at least three more times against allowing school prayer at graduations, at football games, and as part of moments of silence, end quote. But in Bossier, some Bossier teachers often led children in a prayer to start the day, according to a lawsuit. Wertheimer writes, quote, Airline High, one of the district's seven high schools, was cited for putting prayer boxes into which students could deposit prayer requests around the building. Some teachers taught lessons on creationism. Kindergarten students at one school were required to memorize and recite a prayer before lunch. Bossier Parish also had an official prayer policy set by the school board that allowed students and teachers to observe silent prayer or meditation during the school day. The families who participated in the lawsuit against Bossier Parish schools didn't want to sue, they said, but despite numerous letters and complaints. The group sent on their behalf to the school district, Bossier schools refused to stop, end quote. And Wertheimer cites many examples. Here's one of them. In late 2017, the superintendent at the time, Scott Smith, defended prayer at football games on a local radio station there. He was asked by the radio host if the school district would stop prayer over the loudspeakers at football games because it violated a 2000 Supreme Court ruling. Smith said it would not. He said there are creative ways that we can break out in spontaneous prayer and still follow the law. And as you look across the country, here's the reality. The legal landscape began tilting back in favor of prayer in school in recent years, and not just abstract or generalized prayer, not just private prayer. We're talking about intentional Christian prayer, the invocation of Jesus, the instruction of actual biblical scripture, or the memorization of passages and prayers. Journalists like Wertheimer have been cataloging the changes. First, in case you missed it, she describes a recent Supreme Court decision that really matters here. She writes, quote, a lawsuit was winding its way through the courts, backed by organizations that had long supported school prayer over the right of a high school football coach to pray on the field after games. Last June, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 in favor of the coach, Joe Kennedy, who sued the Bremerton, Washington School District after it disciplined him when he refused to end the practice of praying at the 50-yard line following games. The majority opinion in Kennedy versus Bremerton stated that the coach had a right to freely exercise his religion because he was praying outside of his coaching duties. The decision described Kennedy's prayer as a quiet, personal act, end quote. Regarding the impact, here's Wertheimer again, quote, in a handful of states, including Kentucky, Montana, and Texas, lawmakers have recently proposed or passed measures attempting to promote faith in schools. In Kentucky, for example, the legislature passed a law in March that would allow teachers to share their religious beliefs in school. A Kentucky lawmaker who sponsored the House bill told a local television station there that he hoped the measure would embolden these Christian teachers who may have been afraid to express themselves in public schools before, end quote. And in some states, according to attorneys involved in various cases, teachers have now set up prayer clubs for students and delivered sermons in the classroom. In at least one case, a school district cited the Kennedy ruling as the reason for prayer at school board meetings. In Bossier, four plaintiffs came forward to challenge the schools there. One plaintiff told her story to Wertheimer, who wrote, When her youngest son came home from elementary school with a prayer to Jesus in his folder and instructions to memorize it, she complained to his teacher— but the practice continued. His teacher told him he was going to hell if he wasn't a Christian, she remembered, and he had nightmares. At first, she was fearful about joining the suit because she did not want her children to suffer more. Kids were like, if you don't love Jesus, you can't be my friend, she said. 
There were prayers to Jesus sent home with students' notebooks, prayers to Jesus before the fishing team began a match, images of Jesus on the school classroom walls. On YouTube, the host of a local Bossier News program said, well, big deal. For those who take offense, they don't have to participate. But what about the teachers telling kids they would go to hell? What about the students who couldn't make friends or worried they'd be kicked off teams? When the plaintiffs came forward and the lawsuit was filed, Wertheimer writes that the reaction was strong and swift. And the reaction framed the story like this. These four families just wanted to take away religious freedom. U.S. Representative Mike Johnson of Bossier City argued that the lawsuit might usurp the rights of Christians who they insisted, are entitled to the free exercise of their religion. Yes, even in public schools. Advocates for prayer in schools hoped this case would go all the way to the Supreme Court, the Bossier case. They believed that if it did, the court would rule for schools the same way the court recently ruled for coaches who pray on the field. So now let's talk about where it is, what that ruling is about, and where the landscape is, where all of this goes next here. Linda K. Wertheimer is a journalist and author of Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance. And Linda should probably be hosting this program. I'm just along for the ride. Linda, it is, I am grateful for your work. Thank you for making time for the program here. Uh, Evan, thank you so much for having me. And, and thanks for reading from my article, which was in the New Republic and also the Hackinger Report. Absolutely. Um, credit to them. Um, the piece, we'll link to it in our show notes when it's posted okay. today, because um, listeners, it, it, it really is. There's so many different important bookmarks in American history and where this has gone. Also, welcome to Andrew L. Seidel. Andrew is vice president of strategic communications for Americans United for separation of church and state. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Evan. It's a pleasure. And with us in studio is Robert Goldstein, member of the Rochester chapter of Americans United for separation of church and state. Robert, it's been a little while. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for being here. Pleased to be here. Um, and, you know, Robert is the one who put this on our radar recently. I know you had a chance to to talk to Linda. How did this get back? I guess all of this is always on your radar, uh, Robert. But how would you describe the landscape as you see it with prayer in public schools? Well, specifically with regard to Linda's work, uh, it was based, uh, our interest in it was based on the article that she published in the New Republic magazine, which I thought was a terrific piece. It really got to the heart of the issue of uh, what is happening in this country with regard to uh, religion and public schools. And that's something that Americans United for Separation of Church and State has been very interested in for many, many years. In fact, the organization which started in 1957 uh, began when a group of uh, uh, distinguished citizens were concerned about the fact that uh, some legislation had allowed public tax funds to go to sectarian uh, private schools, uh, and they formed that organization, Americans United. They're primarily uh, Protestant clergy, but since then it's become a very ecumenical organization with people from all different uh, faiths and no faith at all uh, that works to protect uh, religious freedom. Well, and, and I want to say at the outset here for listeners who— um, sometimes they're looking to detect, uh, you know, wh where's the host on this? Um, here's what I would want you to know, no matter what your opinion is on this. I appreciate an open exchange of ideas about what the right course of action and policy is. What I'm frustrated by is a Trojan horse approach. So when you say, well, look, you know, people don't have to participate. Let, let schools keep prayer. And for those who don't want to do it, they don't have to do it. But then a teacher tells a student that they're going to hell if they don't participate. Or a school coach doesn't give playing time to a kid who won't pray on the field. Or it's even more overt than that. You start seeing the kind of teachings, etc. Let's just be forthright about where we are, what the courts have said, and what people's intentions are. And then let the courts sort it out. That is part of my frustration in reading about these various cases and the extensive reporting that journalists like Linda Wertheimer have done to help us see what it is all about. And, and Linda, for starters, is, is that fair here? I mean, how would you describe the current legal landscape and, and, and what these various sort of sides are, are working on? Here, interpretation this is, is fair. Um, it's a pretty murky, I would use the word murky. It's a very murky landscape because if you look at the facts in the case of the 2022 Supreme Court ruling, um, and you look at the photos that were actually taken at some of those games where the coach was praying, he would hold up a helmet from, of, of a player from each team and have this prayer circle and have prayers around him. 
But what the majority opinion talked about, it was a private prayer at midfield. But what the school district was saying for eight years, this guy was running prayer circles. And um, I'm not sure if I'm exactly answering your question, but what, what I'd like to add to that is, is something that's often missed in this discussion is the effect on religious minorities and the effect on atheists in America. I mean, if you just take away what the First Amendment says, you know, and, and that there should be, the state should not be promoting religion, essentially. Take that away for a second. Just think of the impact of those children, on those children. There were football players who were mentioned in some of the amicus briefs and talked about, you know, how, the ostracization they felt because of what that coach was doing and how they felt compelled to pray or to join that circle, even though it wasn't their faith or what they believed, they felt they'd be penalized by the coach because he's an authority figure. And, and that's part of what we're talking about here. It, and it's also the two sides have two definitions of religious liberty. And I know this is something Andrew and I have talked about many times. You know, you have folks like Mike Johnson out there will say, this is about the religious liberty of the teachers and the coaches to be able to just you know, express their religion in school, but then what about the freedom of religious minorities and atheists to be free of someone proselytizing to them in a public school setting? Yeah, and, and uh, let me also say, you know, you mentioned what students have gone through. I, believe it or not, li for listeners who just endured the long, one of the longest intros I've ever read on the show, I actually tried <laughs> to edit it down because reading Linda's work, I, w I found myself watching YouTube videos of Bozier meetings and w mm -hmm. watching, um, you know, uh, uh, the, yeah. the the Kennedy case. I'm looking at um, what videos of coaches and prayer circles in various settings and different states. And you go down these rabbit holes trying to really understand what this is about. But so much of this seems to be summed up in this quote that I read. And I'll, I'm going to read this again here. <laughs> when the Kennedy ruling happened... Um, as, as Linda just mentioned here, the Supreme Court, the majority opinion says, hey, it's a private prayer at midfield here. But if that's the case, then why do you have lawmakers in Kentucky telling television stations there that they hoped that this would embolden Christian teachers across the country who've been afraid to express themselves in public schools? That's not a private prayer at midfield. Nope. I might have just said a prayer myself on the show. No one would know it. You can pray at any time of the day. You are welcome to pray to yourself privately, to do whatever you want there. When it becomes an act of the demanding students or encouraging students, then you're not, I don't even think that that, I don't even know what that is, Andrew, but I don't know that that is prayer. It becomes, I think, proselytizing perhaps the right word or recruiting. I don't know what the word would be, but when, how would you describe that, Andrew? cases is public officials using the machinery of the state to impose their personal religious beliefs on other people's kids. That That's really what we're talking about. And the public high school football coach praying with other people's kids on the 50 yard line is a good example of that happening. And especially when you dig into the facts of that case, because what you're, what you're pointing out is this is a coach who's at the 50 yard line after games, the, surrounded by kids praying to them. Right. And, and we know from the factual record in that case that those kids felt like they had to pray to play, because when the coach tells you to do extra reps in the weight room, you do it. When the coach tells you you need to hit study hall a little harder so you can play in the games, you do it. When the coach tells you we're going to pray at 50 yard line, you do it. And we're talking about using the authority and power of the state to impose religion on kids. And, and that really is the problem. And. There is an element of religious freedom here, but as, as Linda pointed out, like there's very different definitions of what religious freedom should mean, right? And in fact, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which was um, on the legal team in both the Bozier case and in the Kennedy versus Bremerton case as well, pointed this out repeatedly. And, and the school district offered that coach opportunities to pray on the field on his own in ways that didn't coerce children into joining him in that prayer. And before some of these uh, right-wing Christian nationalist law firm groups got involved, he actually did that for a while. He would actually go back out onto the field after the games when his coaching duties truly were over, and he would say a quiet, truly private prayer. 
And nobody had any problem with that. And the school district was even willing to accommodate that. But that's not what he was asking for at the Supreme Court. He was asking for a brand new right, which meant imposing his personal religious beliefs on other people's kids using the, the full power of, of the public schools. Well, and that that's not religious freedom. That That's a true violation of the separation of church and state. And it's amazing how far the Supreme Court has fallen in the last few years. Well, Robert Goldstein, you've heard these arguments for years. What would you say to, to those who advocate saying, look, you just don't have to participate. Let them pray. Let them pray in school. Let them pray uh, in the huddle or at the 50-yard line. And for kids and teachers and parents who don't want to do it, they don't have to. What do you say, Robert? Which means that you can exclude part of the population from being part of that community. And that's where the danger comes. It's the separation of people by using religion rather than using religion to bring people together. And that's where I think the problem is. Well, in the Bozier case, you might be wondering where the outcome was here. And it did not reach the Supreme Court. I'm, I would like uh, Linda K. Wertheimer to tell us not only the, the Bozier case outcome, but then um, your visit to Bozier, you write, painted, I think you said, like a murky picture over the actual implementation of what was supposed to be a new policy. Can you take us through this? Yes. And I might have Andrew follow up a little bit on the resolution of that case. What I know of this, I mean, so Bozier lost, a fe they lost um, a federal court judge um, ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, which were the families we talked about and said that you've got to comply with this federal order that both sides agreed on. And that included stopping to promote Christianity. Um, it included having a monitoring committee set up where complaints could be filed. Um, and, and some of the things, so that that's really giving sort of the um, very small version of that. And Andrew might want to jump in at some point and explain a little more. But what I want was trying to find out is were they complying with anything? And immediately, I was like you said, you went on YouTube. You can go on YouTube right now and listen to Bozier Parish school board meetings, and every single meeting starts with a prayer. I mean, sometimes it's a prayer in Jesus's name, sometimes it's not, but everybody's standing up and praying at every school board meeting. And as you may know, given you're in Rochester, there was that famous case in Greece um, where they ruled in favor of allowing prayer at the town meetings. So that landscape is foggy, murky, <laughs> and murky mm -hmm. because if a school board, if someone was to oppose prayer to school board, would they win? We don't know. So that was one. And then when I went to Bozier, what I was trying to see, I was trying to find people who would talk to me, which was quite a challenge, but I did succeed. Um, and secondly, I was trying to find out Okay, they were cited for things like having prayer at school events. So what were they doing at the football games? That was kind of the easy picking, right? Just go to a football game. So I went to a football game, sat there, and sure enough, right in the beginning, uh, the announcer does, you know, welcome to the game, everyone. Now let me introduce the uh, student class president from Airline High. And she gave a prayer over the loudspeaker and I watched as the entire stadium, not everyone, most of the stadium stood up and joined in and bowed their heads. There were people who were not bowing their heads and I spoke to some of them and they were pretty upset. They felt this was a direct violation of the federal court order. And because of the Kennedy case, there's some murkiness there and they were trying, this is where it gets complicated. You know, you talked about the, how the landscape has been changing it's been changing at the Supreme Court level. There's been lower courts where there have been cases, and some of those have um, supported attempts to bring religion back into the schools, including one said, well, if uh, students opt to give a religious message at a graduation, it's okay, as long as it's their choice and they're picked randomly. So Bossier Parish, which had been told to stop promoting Christianity and stop this kind of thing, now had developed a random selection process, so-called, for speakers to give prayer at football games. But in my reporting, what I found out is every week it was a prayer. So that was one of the things. Um, I could stop here if you want to let some others join in well, or well, tell you more. <laughs> I, I, I want to key in on this point and ask Andrew and, and Bob about this as well. But, yeah. um, you know, so, so Linda reminded listeners of the Greece case, which 
I, it's probably the better part of a decade ago now. Ten years. Uh, ten years ago. Okay. So, um, so that was a case that um, I actually had in my mind when I was reading Linda's piece in the New Republic about a possible loophole that would allow prayer that, um, that goes down to that question of, well, we're going to have a prayer or some sort of public invocation, but we will rotate who does it. And if we mm-hmm. just sort of randomly rotate it and let them decide, whether it's before a school board meeting, a town board meeting, as it was in Greece, or perhaps, you know, what maybe it's in the locker room, maybe it's at a school pep rally, maybe it's in class. But if we just rotate it and we don't mandate it be any one thing, does that give us the the loophole necessary to keep doing it? Andrew Seidel does it. Well, I mean, in, I think the the court answered that in the town of Greece case, where you had. Uh, you know, nearly 100% of the prayers were were Christian. Um, I, I think I think we, we're at a place where the court has already okayed that. Sadly, um, now it's different in the school context, um, and and that's what's being complicated by the Supreme Court's you know recent decisions over the last few years, including uh, the Kennedy versus Bremerton case, that coach case. And I mean, in, in Bozier, you know, we so the the technical term for what Linda was talking about was is a consent decree, and basically that means the parties agreed on this, and then a federal judge signs off on it. Um, so. So the, the school district acknowledged that it violated the U.S. Constitution, that it was advancing religion, coercing students in, to participate in these religious activities, and that it was going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And now we're seeing some of that likely violated, probably violated, but they're thinking, well, we're able to do this now mm-hmm. because of these new Supreme Court opinions. And, and one of the things that, that we're facing as an organization that Americans United for Separation of Church and State is dealing with is, okay, there's two big things here. One is the shifting landscape that we're talking about and the Supreme Court really moving very far away from the separation of church and state and almost essentially in, in so- Justice Sonia Sotomayor's words, declaring it a constitutional violation. Um, in some cases. And we're dealing with the perennial problem that we face of getting people who are willing to stand up and push back against these violations and who are willing to challenge these things in in court. And this is the problem that Linda faced when she went down to Bossier and even getting people to talk about them. And, and the reason it's worth highlighting is because it goes to that central point that we're making about do these individuals actually feel like they can just not participate? Do they feel like they can just turn their heads away and ignore it? And, and the answer to that is, is really no, they don't. Um, and, and this is something that the Supreme Court has looked at time and time again, and they've looked at in the context of school prayer cases, because really a lot of these events, football games, school graduation, things like that, they're not voluntary when you're a student at a public school, right? There's tons of peer pressure to go to these events, especially your school graduation. There's tons of peer pressure to participate. It's hard enough being a teenager, right? We don't we don't need to inject religion and coercive religion into that environment too. Yeah, I, I want to take a couple of phone calls from listeners. I, I am reminded of my days as a camp counselor at a camp down at Chautauqua Lake when I was growing up. And during staff trainings, we were told... Be very careful with the stories you tell the kids at night. Ghost stories, those kind of stories, they can, you know, just be careful, be smart. And there was, there was this story that I don't know if it was apocryphal or if it was a true story, but there was a story that a camp got severely sanctioned because a counselor told one of the campers that the devil was in his pillow and the kid had psychological problems out of it. And as an example to, to counselors when we were being trained, it was, don't do that. Even if that story is just a, a, you know, an old wives' tale to try to scare, don't do it. And I don't even know if that story is true. What is definitely true is there are teachers who have told students that they would go to hell if they didn't do the prayers that they were being urged to do. But then you're going to argue that it's an option, that it's just everyone has the choice. And, it's, and that's not an individual choice at that point. That's the point here is, you know, let's be consistent. Let's talk about what we're really trying to do, and then let's have a debate about whether it's the right course of action. But it's not an option if kids are being instructed in that way. I think that's pretty clear. Um, Okay, to the phones we go. Don in East Rochester first. Hi, Don, go ahead. 
Good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. And I'd like to compliment um, Andrew Seidel. I think I've read several of his books that he's written on this subject. Um, uh, and the first point I would like to make is that no one is being prevented from praying. I mean, hell, I prayed a lot in study hall to get an A on my history <laughs> test. No one Did it work, stop- John? Not really. No. No. <laughs> no one can stop anyone from praying. But the what can be prevented is the government, the school board, from forcing prayer on someone. Secondly, if the separation of church and state is dismantled in this country in favor of religion, you can dismantle it in favor of the opposite way. You could get someone, maybe someone like me, who would gladly use the power of the government to close the churches, burn the Bibles in the street. Do we really want that? No. We want the separation of church and state so that these things don't happen. But if you smash the separation of church and state one way, you can smash it to go in the other way. Uh, Andrew, you want to respond to some of that first? Yeah, I mean, first, thank you for the kind words about my books, Don. I appreciate that. Certainly. Andrew, you got to uh, mention it, what your books are called. Uh, American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom is the latest book. And the first book is The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. Uh, so th- thank you for that opportunity, Evan. Much appreciated. Sure. Um, you know, I mean, Don, I, I, you're absolutely right. The, we speak of the wall of separation between church and state as a wall. Uh, you know, as tall and strong and impregnable. And that's how the Supreme Court had written about it before really Chief Justice John Roberts took over. Um, Now, if you listen to, for instance, a lot of the groups on the other side of this, a lot of these Christian nationalist organizations, they talk about it as a one-way wall, which is what you're talking about, Don, right? Which which makes no sense. You you don't choose a wall as a metaphor when you're saying that religion can flow through one way, but not the government through the other way, right? That makes no sense. Thomas Jefferson would not have chosen that metaphor. This is a man who wrote the Declaration of Independence. He at least knew what he was doing when it came to to word choice. So I, I think it is it is worth pointing that out, that the separation of church and state is what guarantees everybody in this country true religious freedom. Right. And, and that is why Americans United for Separation of Church and State fights in the courts and the legislatures and the public square for freedom without favor and equality without exception. And this, this we bring together people of all religions and none to protect the right of everyone to believe as they want, but not allowing anybody to use their beliefs to harm others. And that, that's what we're talking about in these cases. We're talking about public institutions and officials at those institutions abusing their power to impose their personal religion on other people. And that's not okay. Again, they have, there's an old joke that you reminded me of, Don, which is that um, as long as there's math tests in public schools, there's going to be prayer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's it's true. Of of course people are gonna pray in school. And of of course they're allowed to. What we're talking about is school organized, school imposed prayer. And that includes teachers when they're teaching because they are the school. Right. And, and they have this position of power and students are taught to listen to them, taught that what these teachers are telling them is the truth. And it, so it becomes deeply problematic when they're using that power and prestige to to impose their personal religious beliefs. Robert Goldstein wanted to weigh in as well here. Go ahead. As a psychologist, I always think about what motivates people when you see them behaving in a certain way. And it's pretty clear to me that in these kinds of situations, we're really not talking about religion as a motivating factor. It's the lust for power, using religion to control and dominate other people, to make them do what you want them to do. That's what's really evolved. Could I yeah, also yeah. weigh in? Um, yeah, so I actually interviewed some of the teachers in Bossier Parish, and it was really fascinating because some of them had participated in some of the prayer activities before the consent decree came out. And when I spoke with them, they were like, well, we just thought it was okay. And then they said it took, and then they, they had grown up. So Bossier Parish is in the Bible Belt, but, but I have seen cases like this in places that aren't the Bible Belt. So be aware of that. But many of the teachers that grew up in the Bible Belt grew up with prayer in their schools. 
And when you would talk to them, they'd be like, well, it's just tradition. Why would it hurt anyone? You know, that was something I heard because it was so, I don't even think it was a power trip for a lot of these teachers. I think it was so much, I grew up with this. And so why isn't, why would it hurt anyone? And one of the things they don't understand is a lot of those kids aren't, you know, that's where they have the power as uh, Bob is saying. Um, why don't more people speak up? Cause you know, they're like, well, no one ever complains. That's such a common thing because you're the teacher, you're the coach, you know, you're in charge. Um, one other thing that I would add is I led my new Republic piece with Jennifer Russell and her family and her daughter after that consent decree was in a elementary school classroom where a teacher was still leading kids in prayer. They had been told, stop, she was still doing it. I asked the school district about it and they're like, well, we don't know unless somebody complains. That was one of the things they said. But I think until somebody complains, unfortunately, schools will keep doing it even if they know the rules. What I wanna take our only break of the hour, and then I've got your phone calls lined up here. Philip and Bright and Jane in Rochester will take your calls. I've got some emails to read, uh, including some uh, a, a listeners who, who's asking, well, are we not allowed to teach about religion at all in school? That's not the argument, I don't think, but uh, I want our guests to kind of uh, grapple with that as well for you as we're talking about the question of where things stand with prayer in public schools, and the very significantly changing legal landscape, especially in the last five to seven years in this country. Linda K. Wertheimer is a journalist and author of Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance, and she has been reporting on these issues extensively, um, and we'll link to some of her reporting on our show notes today. Andrew Seidel, Vice President of Strategic Communications for Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and from the local chapter here, it's Robert Goldstein. We'll come right back to your feedback after this only break. From WXXI News, I'm Jasmine Singer. Tune in Friday for our Environmental Connection series for a deep dive into climate change's role in family planning, where experts share insights on navigating parenting and sustainability. Then in our second hour, we're putting the spotlight on flooding as a critical climate challenge. We'll explore the latest on urban planning for flooding mitigation and much more. That's coming up Friday on Environmental Connections. This is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Philip and Brighton on the phone next. Hi, Philip. Go ahead. Hi. Um, first of all, props to Americans United. I've known about them for a long time. And I've been educated on this issue by a man that actually lived in Rochester, who is the son of the mother who brought one of the Supreme Court cases, and that was Jim McCollum. He lived in Rochester for many years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Me, as a member of the Unitarian Universalist Church, and he reminded me a lot of points that um, I think that would add to this discussion. One of the first ones is the Supreme Court that loves to talk about being originalists seemed to forget that our founding fathers weren't today's concept of Christians. They were deists. And uh, this country was founded by a lot of religious groups that were persecuted right out of their home countries, and they had to come here to get away from the government persecuting them because their religion didn't come part with the uh, official government's idea of uh, what a real religion is. And Jim McCollum also reminded me many times that letting government institutions into religion unleashes that bureaucracy on religion. And many churches, for and Americans United knows this perfectly well, knows that for decades and decades, churches have fought to keep government out of their business and religion. They enjoy tax exemptions. They enjoy um, all sorts of independence from government um, and government interference. And uh, I think that's really important that this is not a new discussion. This has been going on since the very founding of this country. And how many religions came here, or how many pilgrims came here to escape that kind of persecution? And I always like to ask my, you know, fundamentalist Christian friends, um, what if I was a Muslim and I wanted my local school to do the call to prayer and observe that every single day in the school district? Would they fight for my right to have that in the public schools? And the answer always seems to be, well, maybe, but in reality, we all know the answer to that. And I really agree with um, the point that this is really a discussion about power. This is not a discussion about religion. This is all about having a select group of people use religion as a hammer to impose their will on, on the rest of this country. 
as, as the other caller from East Rochester mentioned, we can all pray. God doesn't need us to speak out loud. He can, if, if he can hear us, if you so believe in a God, that you know that you don't need to be vocal. Um, you can say your prayer any way you want to yourself, among your friends, but why do we need to have a school district come up with a prayer, print it up, and then send it out into a classroom and have it read? It's just, it's just not American. Philip, thank you. Maybe I'll start with Andrew Seidel if you want to offer any thoughts there. Yeah, I, have, I mean, I have so many thoughts. Um, first of all, yeah, the McCollum versus Board of Education is the case, 1948, which basically says that religious instruction in school, in public schools, violates the First Amendment. Uh, I know Jim McCollum, great guy, uh, law professor. And, I, you know, one of the things that really strikes me is that the wall of separation between church and state is an American original. Right, that, that is an American invention. It, the idea was floating around in the Enlightenment, but it was first implemented in the American experiment. Until then, no other nation in the history of the world had sought to protect the ability of its citizens to think freely by separating religion and government. And, and if you look at our constitution, most of the truly unique and original elements are secular. Our constitution was the first to declare that power comes from the people, not from God. So those first words that are in big, bold letters, we the people, they're poetic, but they're so much more. They're a declaration of power. Our constitution was the first governing document not to mention a God or a deity. And it was godless by choice, not by accident. And in fact, there were people in the founding generation who objected to that choice. And our constitution was the first to ban religious tests for public office in Article 6. And that was actually the only mention of, orig of religion in the original unamended document. And, and this is some of the most clear and emphatic language in a document that's often deliberately vague. It says, no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust. No shall ever any. And then even after all that, you have the First Amendment. So you can see that the separation of church and state is woven throughout the fabric of our entire constitutional system. There's a lot that's wrong with the constitution, but those secular foundations are what made it unique and are genuine contributions, not just to political science and thought, but to all humanity. Robert Goldstein? You know, because Americans United often find itself in the position of being in conflict with certain religious organizations, sometimes we're seen as being anti-religious, and that's so far from the truth. We see ourselves as protecting religion by making sure that the government is not in a position to control and influence religion. So the idea that we are anti-religious is absurd. Uh, the 25-year-long the uh, director was a uh, uh, minister of the United Church of Christ. So this is hardly a, an irreligious group. Well, that's an interesting point, uh, Robert, because for, you know, for the course of human history, I don't know how many actual sort of organized religions with multiple worshipers and followers have been. But, I mean, today there I, there's probably 2,000-something. So if you are a true believer in your religion, your expectation is that you've got the right one. It's the true story of the universe and creation. Everyone else is wrong, and everyone else has always been wrong. And that's absolutely your right to believe that. But what the notion of school prayer— it would be privileging whatever one over the thousands of others. And so to endorse school prayer would actually be anti-religious and anti-sort of personal freedom for the thousands of others or the nuns out there, N-O-N-E. I, I think that's right. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think what Robert is saying is any sort of spin. I think that that's correct. It just happens to be well, I mean, maybe, Andrew, it's just a case of if you're in a district uh, that's very majority one religion or if the culture is very strong for sort of performative public worship, then maybe that point gets lost in um, in the fray, perhaps. What? I mean, I think it's a way to to ignore minorities and to, and to pretend that they're not part of the full community. And this is something that the Supreme Court used to worry about in its opinions was what does it do to the folks who are not part of that particular favored sect when the government is adopting that religion as as its its chosen uh, belief system? And, I mean, and to build on your point a little bit more, uh, you know, the separation of church and state, when uh, James Madison helped institute it, he predicted that it was going to lead to this flourishing of these you know, thousands of different religions that you mentioned. Because when you don't have an established church, 
you have a a you know marketplace out there, a jungle where you, any anything can happen. And so this is actually something that both James Madison and Adam Smith would predicted would happen in the United States if it separated church and state. So it, it, the the variety of religions that we see uh, when we look out at at the United States as this pluralistic society is because we have a separation of church and state in this country. Linda, any, anything to add, Linda? Yes, um, I'm very familiar with the McCollum case because I, my family, by the way, I was born in uh, upstate New York and we lived in the Elmira Horseheads area until I was nine. Then we moved to Finley, Ohio. And my first week of school, a woman came in and started running religious education classes in my fourth grade classroom. So I was preached at in my fourth grade classroom. My parents got me excused. And then later as an adult, I was researching like, you know, we had thought about fighting it and we didn't at the time. This was in the 70s. And later I researched the McCollum case and found out that, hey, what my school was doing in the 70s into the 80s had been declared unconstitutional in 1948. And and, and just this goes to something that Andrew was getting at that was set up to protect religious minorities, but we do also have to use it <laughs> to protect ourselves. And we were afraid because we were the only Jewish family in my rural Ohio public school. And I was regularly getting kids telling me I was going to hell. And that was also kind of the message that was coming from the adults in the room. So mm. I'm bringing that up. Uh well, let me get some more feedback from, from listeners here. Stephen says, Evan, I'm a lay leader in my local Methodist church, and part of my job is to bring people to grace through Jesus. Even to grown adults openly seeking to learn, this is a thorny task. Teachers and coaches, school administrators are given a clear authority over the children in their schools. This well-meant desire to bring kids to Christ while at school is the worst kind of excess. Preaching eternal damnation to innocent children and otherwise kind, decent folk is so misguided. Teaching kids religion at school? You have a fool for a preacher. You give these kids some idea of what they are doing, but you are playing with their salvation. Being given a trust to instruct and guide children does not give them license to preach. That is from Stephen. Um, interesting comment there. And let me read one more because there are some similar threads I'm seeing here. Um, Barry says, religion is taught as part of New York State uh, social studies classes because it is an integral part of teaching about their learning. What are the different parts of a culture? They're learning about that. So would a Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Satanist, a Jew, an animist, or a member of any religion besides Christianity be allowed to lead prayers in these schools? Who would howl if any of these religious people led a prayer in public school? That's from Barry. But the first part of Barry's comment there is that it, there is some teaching of religion. And yes. let me ask all of our... I hear you, Linda. Why don't you start, Linda? The question I of, of I wrote a whole whether book to about teach. It. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to give you some space to answer the question that multiple <laughs> listeners are asking, um, which is, are your guests saying there should be no teaching of religion in schools? Okay. So um, as you know, my book, Faith Ed, that's actually looking at public schools' efforts to teach about the world's religions. And we were very careful to use the phrase about in there. Um, there's an expression, teach, don't preach. So yes, legally, you can totally teach about the world religions in public schools as a part of social studies, as a part of literature. You know, come, it comes up in a lot of different ways. And teachers should be able to do that without preaching. You have to put aside your own personal beliefs and you can teach about what are the core beliefs of different faiths, for example, as I saw done in school districts around the country. And then you can, but you teach about many religions, you're not promoting one religion. And I saw school districts teach about Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism, and Islam and Sikhism. And it was done in an educational way. And at the same time, the students would also learn what are stereotypes in religion. So done this way, it became a tool to fight religious bigotry rather than a tool that could separate us. It was more like a tool that would show, here's the differences between different religions. It's okay to have different beliefs. We're just talking about what they are, what roles they might've played in history. And, and I would add geography. How do you learn about a country when you're studying geography if you don't know what the religions are in that country 
like India, which has many religions. Okay. I mean, so Linda's book, by the way, what's the name of the book? Uh, it's Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance. Okay. So I, I hope that answers what some listeners are, are raising, which is this idea that are your guests saying that there should be no... But part of what Linda yeah. and part of what Robert and Andrew, I'm sure, is going to jump in here is there is education on religion already. Go ahead, Andrew. Yeah. I mean, I, I the teach, not preach is, is a very mm. useful an instructive, instructive way to remember it. You can teach about religion, but you can't preach it as truth. You can educate about religion, but you can't indoctrinate children into religion. Teach, not preach, educate, not indoctrinate. And I mean, that is what we're talking about here. What, what we're really talking about is, is abuses of power, right? You, you have teachers or you have coaches or you have school officials who are taking the power and the position of authority that they have over other people's kids and trying to indoctrinate them into religion, trying to have them engage in a particular form of religious worship with them and in their religion, which the parents may not want for their kids or the kids may not want for themselves, right? So we're talking about abuses of power here is another way I think that might be helpful for to frame that for people uh, if you're out there listening and a little confused about those lines. Um, Robert, anything you wanna add there? Well, I think the fact is that religion is so much a part of our whole society, that to simply say we're going to ignore that whole component of human endeavor is absurd. It's like saying, let's not talk about oxygen. But teach, don't preach. Um, Richard writes and invokes Matthew in chapter 6, um, and Richard says, uh, this is the Bible verse about praying in your room with the door closed. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be the, as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into my closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. End quote. That's from Richard. Um, just a, That's also from the Sermon on the Mount, too. I mean, not like just a small part of... Don't you know, quiz kind of me, an Andrew. It's been part. a while since I've read. <laughs> I've read the Bible cover to cover, but not in like 30 years, 25 years. Um, but it, and the point being, of course, uh, that Richard is raising here is, what is the purpose of prayer to begin with? And if it is performative and if it is required, then is it something else entirely? Suzanne writes to say, when I was a teaching assistant... Uh, in a class many years ago, the lead teacher was a pastor's wife who brought her faith into the classroom. When I brought my concerns up to the assistant principal, I was told, well, a lot of these kids come from a rough environment. If hearing God talk is the worst thing that happens during their school day, I don't see that it's a problem. The message I got from that was that these kids couldn't expect the same rights as more privileged kids, and that felt paternalistic to me. That is from Suzanne. Interesting point there, Andrew, because what Suzanne is saying is, um, that's actually discrimination against kids um, who are already struggling in many ways. Um, and I, it makes me wonder, what is the next sort of legal landscape that you have your eyes on as the Vice President of Strategic Communications for Americans United for Separation of Church and State? Yeah, I mean, well, we uh, that is a deeply disturbing story. And I mean, we're, we're watching the Supreme Court with with deep alarm here um things have really really changed uh when it comes to these issues at the supreme court and and really under the 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 john roberts rule the, the court has completely shifted in this regard and there's some there's some data and numbers that have been crunched you know it used to be that religion won about half the time at the court um under roberts that win rate jumps to 81 percent, and those numbers don't include the most recent terms including the coach kennedy imposing prayer on other people's kids case um and, and it's important to know this is not a a pro-religion but a pro-christian shift because in the earlier courts mainstream christianity won about 44 percent of the time and that's you know this is what you'd expect the coin toss basically but under roberts that number nearly doubles up to 85 percent and, and what we are really seeing is that religious freedom has become this weapon of christian privilege and it's something that we're watching very very closely and doing everything we can to fight back against right now linda k wartimer where is your work focused on right now I am working on a new book about school prayer. Um, and part of that is looking at the 1992 case, Lee versus Weipsman. Uh, it was a Supreme Court ruling, which had said, you cannot have clergy led prayer at graduation. And when you start looking at that case, you can draw a line from 1992 to today. And you can see how 
as Andrew says, you know, like the Christian nationalists have their response to that kind of ruling and some of the previous one led to even more of a desire to try and push religion back in. So I, I am I am looking both at history regarding school prayer and then how did we get to where we are today? Well, so you that, that's where I'm at. Will you come back to this program when that book is out? I would love to. And I hope my uh, agent's listening. <laughs> uh, whether your agent's listening or not, you just committed. Uh, and we committed to that conversation. Let me wrap up with this. A couple quick emails. Maureen says, as a high school English teacher in the 90s, I taught a unit on mythology to my ninth graders. More than once, a parent accused me of trying to convert their kid to paganism. Uh, that is from Maureen. And then uh, Rick says... Evan, um, please make sure that you don't let listeners have the impression that Americans United is all atheists. There are plenty of religious people who agree with their mission. Robert, what do you think? Absolutely. Small commercial. Uh, AU.org uh, will get you to our national office, and you can uh, uh, donate funds or, or join the organization and get a monthly magazine. So we uh, very much invite you to come along with us. Um, and uh, final thoughts from you, Andrew, if you want to pick up that, that thread on, on the email there or final thoughts for listeners. I would absolutely love for people to visit au.org and support our work. Uh, we've been in this fight for 75 years. You know, We are the preeminent organization working to ensure that church-state separation remains the shield that protects religious freedom for us all. And we really only can do that as Americans united. And that's why I'm so proud to be part of an organization that embodies that value in its very name. So I hope everybody out there considers supporting our amazing, crucial work. Andrew Seidel from Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Thank you for making the time, Andrew. My pleasure. Linda K. Wertheimer, whose latest book, Faith Ed, Teaching About Religion in an Age of Intolerance Among Many Works. And we're going to link in our show notes to her journalistic work covering these stories. Linda, thank you for the expertise. And I do look forward to the next conversation. Thank you so much, and hello to Rochester. <laughs> Absolutely. And Robert, hello back from Rochester. Robert Goldstein, member of the Rochester chapter of Americans United. Thank Good you to be with here. you and keep up the great journalism. Well, thank you, Robert. I appreciate that. And from the whole team of Connections, Rob, Megan, Evans saying thanks for listening. We're back with you tomorrow with Environmental Connections and Jasmine Singer on member-supported public radio. <laughs>